Welcome to the AMR Studio, a podcast dedicated to the multidisciplinary research on antimicrobial resistance, hosted by the Uppsala Antibiotic Center. Hi, I am Eva Garmendia. And I'm Jenny Jagman. Welcome to the second episode of the AMR Studio. If you are new here, welcome. Thank you so much for being with us. We hope you enjoy it. If you are a returning listener and you were with us in the first episode, we're so happy that you're here as well. Um, so as you can listen, if you listen to our last episode, we sound much better now. We got professional equipment. We, ho- we got very fancy microphones. So uh, parts of the episode were actually going to be recorded in a really good uh, sound quality. So there is that. Uh, but the interviews that we are going to feature in this episode and the common episodes were actually recorded before we got good equipment. So they might still not sound as good as what you're listening right now. So this is the first episode of our regular episodes uh, because the previous one was a little bit longer than we, we what we expect to have and it featured kind of a different section. So the structure of this episode is going to be the following. We are going to have a feature interview and after the feature interview, uh, my co-host, my colleague Jenny and I, we are going to have a short discussion about uh, what we heard in that interview. And after we are going to end up the episode with a small news section talking about a couple of exciting things that has happened around the world in the topic of antimicrobial resistance. So today we are featuring an interview that we did back in uh, 10th of September. Professor Kevin Outerson, who is the director of the program CARVEX. Jenny did this interview because he was here uh, visiting as part of his work. And we really hope you enjoy what he is going to tell us. Thank you very much for joining us today, Professor Alderson. Would you like to introduce yourself, what field you're working in now, and how you ended up there? Um, sure. My name is Kevin Alderson. I'm a professor at Boston University. At uh, BU, I teach at the law school. I've been doing research for the past 15 years on the way that antimicrobial resistance interacts with law and economics. So historically, the way that intellectual property uh, worked or, or didn't work with, uh, with antibiotics. So how did you, you have a background in law, how did you end up in antimicrobial resistance? I was working on a project nearly 15 years ago in which it was a a comprehensive review of the law and economics of intellectual property. So how intellectual property affects innovation, especially for biotech firms. And there's several key assumptions in the whole field. And I just thought, well, one of these assumptions doesn't work if the innovation degrades with use over time or or loses its effectiveness through use. And I dropped a footnote and said that, uh, for example, you know, an antibiotic that becomes less effective because of resistance. And then I went on for a 90-page article, you know, really a, a small book uh, that was eventually published in the Yale Journal of Health Policy. Um, but that footnote bothered me because <laughs> essentially what it meant was that for antibiotics, everything I had just said might not be true, right? And yeah. so the last 15 years, I've been obsessed with that footnote. So it's a little bit like a thorn in your side that yeah, started, yeah. It, it's, <laughs> started it's, the whole process. It's turned out to be 98% of what I do in life now. So I, I warn graduate students to be careful of footnotes. <laughs> you know, if, if you let your curiosity go, you may actually veer off in a direction you did not expect. But isn't that a good thing? It's a great thing. So let's say, are you happy with where you ended up? Happy it's, it's a great thing. AMR. You could not have created, you know, I could not have predicted or created, uh, you know, where I've ended up. So curiosity-driven research, it's really the core of what you do in a university. Yeah, I'm grateful absolutely. for it. That's great. How does your perspective as a, with a legal background, looking at law and economics, coincide with others in specifically AMR research? There's a lot of people involved in AMR research, you know, so you could have a clinician who's uh, treating patients with drug-resistant infections and they're hoping for something better, you know, mm-hmm. a better drug or, you know, an epidemiologist for the ECDC or something, you know, trying to track spread of diseases or a hospital infection control person trying to prevent things in their hospital. When it started this, there weren't that many lawyers or economists looking in this field. And I always asked questions about, well, how, how does this get paid? Or mm-hmm. or who makes money or loses money because of this decision? Or how do economic incentives change behavior in this area? 
And uh, there were interesting questions that eventually ended up in rooms with lots of clinicians and epidemiologists, and I had to learn to speak their language. So a lot of the work that's interdisciplinary in, in AMR comes from people that are drawn to a common topic or common problem, but come to it with really different methods, techniques, and training. Um, I don't think, I think this is the sort of problem, AMR, that could only be solved by a university, you know, by a, a groups of people with different disciplines and different departments and different perspectives working together. It's too big of a problem otherwise. Do you think that sort of interdisciplinary action or collaboration can move into the policy sector or more into the, I say, out of the university? I mean, there's all of this saying that researchers that stay in their ivory tower and don't communicate out. I mean, AMR, if anything, is a problem that, yes, needs to be worked on at the university, but doesn't it also need to spread out from the university? The reason why I'm sitting in Uppsala today <laughs> is uh, because I was part of a project that um, several people here worked on for three years called Drive AB, mm -hmm. funded by the IMI, by the European Commission. Uh, its focus was to take academic work and, and companies who were studying the, the problems of antibiotic reimbursement and to come up with solutions for Europe. Mm -hmm. And it was a multidisciplinary team. I got to know uh, the people here in Uppsala uh, really well through that three-year project. And I'm here back today at their invitation to talk about the next things that we're all working on. But uh, so yeah, those, those meetings and projects sometimes develop collaborations that endure even after the funding dries up. Yeah, it's good to hear. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'd like to bring in something that you mentioned at your talk this morning. So you said that some people ask, as you as the director for CARB-X have been asked, why is a lawyer the director? And I was wondering if you could elaborate on that here as well and tell our listeners a little bit. So CARB-X is a, is a global nonprofit. We're the world's largest product development partnership for antibiotic products. Uh, we currently have about $504 million U.S. million to spend over five years supporting, you know, as if we were a nonprofit venture capital firm, antibiotic development worldwide. Um, I direct it. And so one way to answer your question is that I wrote the grant, and therefore I get to run it. You know, I wrote the grant that, that won, but that begs the question of why did our grant win? Part of it is that I had worked for the previous, at that point, 12 years with increasingly prominent and interdisciplinary teams including things like Drive AB, and all of that experience and network was valuable in, in doing what I'm doing now. So I'm not a scientist. I, I don't make science decisions for CARBEX, but I, you know, a lot of what's needed at the top of CARBEX is, is managing relationships and alliances, and um, that's really what I did for the prior decade, increasingly in the AMR space. Um, another way to answer the question, though, is that um, I, in private practice before I became academic, uh, because uh, I practiced law for a dozen years before I, start, I switched to becoming a professor. Um, I was a transactional healthcare lawyer. So I did complex healthcare deals, bringing together partners and getting them to, to agree and, and forging consensus. And every one of those skill sets from 12 years of practice, I've drawn on in this uh, first two years, Carbex. Uh, so if you're going to replace me, I think you need to find somebody who is, I wouldn't necessarily look for a scientist. I would look maybe for, you know, a business leader who was great at, at building alliances mm -hmm. or something. It's really the skill set that I've had to use. Absolutely. It sounds like Carbex is a really good example of this coming together of different skills. There's the science background that you have the board that approves the actual scientific projects or judges them and gives right. recommendations. But it definitely has this business aspect, the uh, the whole, maybe what these research groups are missing. You spoke today about the network um, network of uh, accelerators that helps these small, small research-based right. and often maybe university spinoffs in many cases, if I've understood how these come to be, uh, they need this help from a business background and they need to understand the legal, the regulations around developing the pharmaceuticals or developing new products for diagnostics or such things. If I understood right, it sounds like an excellent example of how we really need to combine all these skills. And it can't always 
it can't just be scientists and research. It has to move forward. Yeah. A lot of the teams we work for work with are recent spin outs from universities. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, a great scientist is not always the best business person. No. <laughs> I think you a know, lot of people agree with you. <laughs> I could say that more strongly, right? You know, so sometimes great scientists need a lot of, you know, of support. And mm -hmm. especially if the company is still only five people, it's likely science-driven, science-led. Maybe they've hired one person to do things that are not science. Uh, but... To do drug development requires all sorts of expertise. There are many regulatory hurdles, many things you need to do, and you have to get it right. Mm -hmm. and, and these companies are cash poor, so they have to get it right the first time. So our goal is to give the companies the sort of business technical, you know, manufacturing, other help that they may not understand, to give them that help already for free, prepaid, because we don't want any company to fail for a business or a technical reason. Um, many of them will not succeed for a science reason. Yeah. You know, science is that's hard. Science works. Most of the molecules won't work. Yeah. And, and that's we're, we're going to not be upset about that, but applaud that as normal science. But we don't want a good molecule to fail because it had a, a bad business process. Yeah. <laughs> so we spend about about three or four percent of our money on giving direct support to the companies on business support. We call that acceleration. Mm -hmm. I also found it really interesting that um, Carbex really seems to focus on these really inno innovative, different approach kind of things. Where maybe that would get lost if you're going purely from a business perspective yeah. uh, or from, I mean, obviously a lot of the big pharma companies are no longer working in antimicrobial research. Um, but it's really nice to see this um, really allowing science to still be innovative, but at the same time providing the structure that is needed to actually produce products that can go to the people who need them to the, solve the problems that we're working on. And it seems seems to me to be, like I said, a really good example of a good collaboration, of good combination of skills. All right. If, if I was an actual venture capitalist, <laughs> you, know, you would invest your money on the projects that are most likely to succeed. Mm -hmm. and, and those might be extensions of known classes, or, or ideas that, that you already understand exactly how they're going to work. Um, but I also wear a global health hat, and what I what we want, what my funders want, what, what Carvex want, is to address resistant bacteria for priority bacteria. And so mm -hmm. we want new classes. We want entirely novel approaches. We want really high-risk things that uh, private capital today just wouldn't invest in preclinical work and such things. So... We hope to uh, to advance them along and, and give them, uh, they graduate from CARBACs at the end of phase one, SADMAT studies. So they should graduate from us with a highly innovative, but with human data and with a good preclinical program behind it. And uh, that might be, you know, something that a company, somebody else will invest in. Yeah. But they wouldn't have invested in this other stuff. No. So our goal is to make the pipeline not only full of more products, but better products that are more prepared for the next step. Maybe yes. Well. Yeah. Higher impact yeah. products that I agree with you. They, they wouldn't have gotten funded by private money in the current market. Uh, to switch sides a little bit. Uh, what do you think is missing in AMR research right now from your point of view? So one thing that's really missing from AMR is uh, we, we have excellent bench science going on. Uh, I think uh, the folks at Carbex, we had some of the world's most knowledgeable people in AMR research and development from you know the, the experts, and they were surprised with the diversity of great ideas coming from these little companies. Okay, so we're having great bench science. Uh, what's lacking, I think, is an understanding of the rest of what happens in, in society. So more broadly, the social sciences. Uh, so why is it that we're overusing antibiotics? Well, it's not really a bench science question. That's a, a human behavior. You know, why do people want these things, even if they have a virus? Right? Yeah. Uh, why is it that physicians are willing to, to use them, even if it's, if it's not clearly indicated? You know, why is it that uh, everyone says that a diagnostic would be a great way to solve this problem, but no one seems to be able to get the diagnostic to market that's going to do it? A lot of clever engineers are working on great new diagnostics for AMR, but I'm convinced that 
it's not just the shiny, super wonderful technology in a box. We, we also have to worry about whether the physicians will actually use the diagnostic in a way that changes clinical practice. And to do that, uh, you have to have a diagnostic that the hospital will purchase, that, that the CFO, you know, chief financial officer thinks is a good deal for the hospital, uh, that fits in with the rest of the lab equipment in, in there that, that the lab techs like, uh, that a physician trusts enough to, to utilize as fast enough to change the way that, you know, yeah. it has to do a lot of other things Absolutely. in terms of interfacing with people. If, if the goal is to change clinical practice and to improve clinical practice. And all of those human interfaces are, are not necessarily a, a lab no. project. They're a social science project, which touches law and economics and business and history and psychology and, and education and, and mm -hmm. many other fields. And on top of that, it's also an extremely how you say, diverse problem because these situations that we need to look into, the social science behind it, differ from region to region, from country to country, from town to town. Depending on the legal structure or the yeah. history or, or And know, I'm thinking the, the diagnostics, that's a lot about the health infrastructure in the country, right. the ability of the hospitals to purchase equipment depending on the price. Which uh, is a really painful answer for some of these yeah. you know, people because you know, the lab answer, you know, this molecule kills this bacteria mm -hmm. in a petri dish. Hopefully you would get the same answer anywhere on the globe to that, yeah. to that, you know, that's science. <laughs> it's going to work everywhere the same. Yeah. And uh, the social science will depend on the social context, right? There may be some broadly similar things and there may be things that are dramatically different. Mm -hmm. right? So how do we change human behavior in a way that's helpful to AMR? Yeah. And, uh, and, I think there's large parts, many groups within the universities that, uh, and, and the skill sets that they represent that are necessary to, to bring, be brought to bear on this question. Are you working on anything to address this issue right now? So I know that uh, you know, Uppsala is, work, is yeah. working on these issues, obviously. And I'm trying. <laughs> right. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of your efforts. At Boston University, uh, we have a, a small program. Uh, called CIDR, Social Innovation and Drug Resistance, SIDR. And uh, we've hired our first four postdocs. The way that I designed CIDR, uh, I also direct that, is uh, that I asked uh, Boston University professors uh, to find another professor also interested in AMR who was in a different school or department or a different discipline. And then together, they had to get together and come up with an idea of a topic that they would have a postdoc for. Uh, so the proposals that came to me were different pairs of BU professors who wanted to do, together do a project. Uh, I picked me and a team, including a professor here at Uppsala, uh, <laughs> Francesco helped uh, selecting the four mm -hmm. that we, we picked um, out of the applicants. And then they go off and hire a postdoc um, with money that we provide to, uh, that my program provides in order to go off and do the project for two years. The thought is that by forcing two professors from different disciplines to work together, you know, they chose to work together, so they must like each other. Uh, <laughs> it forces it to be interdisciplinary from the word go. Um, I don't ask those departments to pay anything. Uh, all of it's paid for through CIDR. And, uh, and it's a two-year postdoc so that the person will have enough time, hopefully, to execute some good projects. Uh, what I offer them is access to all of the data inside of CARBEX and all the networks and resources that I have. So, you know, if they're interested in a certain type of diagnostic, um, probably I would know the companies that are doing that and can put them in contact with it. Uh, so, so we have an interdisciplinary project. It's social science-based, not lab science-based, um, and it's tied into the CARBEX network data and resources. And, uh, all protected under confidentiality, of course. You know, we'll protect the company's trade secrets. Um, but the, at the end of the day, I hope to create a cadre of, of uh, four postdocs and then another four behind them uh, who executed interesting social science interdisciplinary projects in AMR. And, uh, you know, maybe one of them will end up over here as, you know, doing, <laughs> you know and you'll, and yeah. you, and Uppsala will have had a number of uh, PhDs coming out of your program, you know, mm -hmm. by that time. And you know, this is how you start a movement is train senior people to, 
to leave it. Yeah, train people also to work together in different in interdisciplinary fields from the beginning, maybe as well. Right. To have that perspective from and, the beginning. And the only place I know and on the planet that's doing that is Uppsala and, and Boston University. Mm. You know, in terms of do, doing a serious effort to do interdisciplinary work in AMR. But I also find one thing that uh, the CIDR program seems, that seems to be invaluable uh, is really this connection to CARBEX, the, the data set and the transparency of really being able to look at the success. And that I, I think that that's something that's incredibly valuable with your program, that you have the access to all of this and can really do some good work with it and know where the data came from, you know where the sources are, you know the accuracy of the data. Right. <clears throat> we, we have very accurate, very comprehensive, eventually longitudinal data mm-hmm. on really every company doing significant research in the antibacterial field. So it's a pretty complete yeah. data set over time. And that's something that I think the academic field can sometimes be missing. It's this yeah. slight gap to the industry. Right. While we still need to, as you said, do research on this data, it's not always there. And it's not always available for the for academia mm-hmm. to work with. Right. I, I do recognize the value of, of the, the data set. And just, just to be clear, we, um, you know, we have to protect always company uh, confidentiality and trade secrets. Of course. So, so the work that would be done would be anonymized you know, aggregated academic yeah. work. Uh, we're not going to publish anything that says Company X did Y. No, no, <laughs> right? of course. But, but what we'll be able to say is that, you know, this is how long it took antibiotic companies on average mm-hmm. to do this, that, or other thing. And this is the cost of what it took companies on mm-hmm. average. And, and here's how these companies inside of Carvax did compare to their peers who were not in Carvax. Yeah. Were they faster or slower, more expensive or less? Did they do a better job or worse? Mm-hmm. You know, and, and so those sorts of broader questions, uh, not questions or answers with specific companies. No, absolutely not. Yeah. But it's it that in itself is valuable. Oh, that, yeah. I mean, I think so. The name of the company matters less than how we're approaching the problem in a way. Are we... Academics love right great data sets. Yeah. I've got a great data set. <laughs> <laughs> I really hope somebody uses it well. That, that's part of why I'm here. I, I doubt we'll have trouble finding people who want to interrogate the data. No, set. I don't yeah. think so. It might have the opposite. I don't work in social sciences and I find it really appealing. <laughs> uh, but I'd also like to ask oh, you've worked in a lot of different collaborations with different people from different fields. How do you find these collaborations to work? Do you find there to be issues working maybe with people from the hard sciences mm-hmm. or do you find that uh, maybe opinions are changing maybe people are more open to working with people from different backgrounds i think that um a key skill set is to look for areas of, of agreement and to try to reframe whatever problem you're seeing there may just be a, another way to frame it mm-hmm. that everyone can agree and uh, certain people or certain you know, occupations in life, that, that's what they do well, okay? Um, transactional lawyers do that well. Litigation, <laughs> litigation lawyers are the opposite. They're looking for ways to destroy the opposition, right? <laughs> um, prosecutors are the opposite, yeah. right? You know, the, the, their job is, to, is another piece. Um, marriage counselors, <laughs> right? Um, yeah. Business people whose job it is to connect networks, are like that. Maybe, you know, some deans or academic leaders whose job it is to drive consensus mm-hmm. have a good skill set on this, right? Yeah. You know, so it, you just have to look for ways in which they actually are in agreement. And it's rarely on the text. It's you usually have to step back and think, well, what are your real objectives? Yeah. Well, you know, what are your values? Okay, how can we both get to those similar values by by slightly changing what you're asking for. It's a lot of lot of what I do. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously very useful. Uh, so this is kind of along the same line, but what do you often find is misunderstood about your field? I think you still need to educate governments and the public that this is a forever problem, mm-hmm. you know, that we can't fix this and then next. Um, I think uh, foundations and charities and governments are sometimes you know, want to fix a problem and then move on, right? Yeah. But because of resistance and the fact of that the bacteria evolve in response to selective pressure from antibiotics, we will never solve this problem. 
Yeah. You know, we, we can attenuate it, we can slow it down, we can have lots of things in, in, the, in, the, in the pipeline to protect us. We can have multiple redundant ways to, to be safer. But we, we have, this, is, this is something that has to be addressed forever. Mm-hmm. There's no <laughs> silver bullet. <laughs> If there is, it'll tarnish over time, yeah. you know, and then eventually become worthless. Right? And and the goal of, of stewardship and infection control is to make that tarnishing happen over many decades. So yeah. the silver bullet lasts 100 years. Mm-hmm. Right? That would be effective infection control and stewardship instead of it lasting only 10 years. It's still working on either another one at some point. The need for innovation never ends. The need for... Stewardship and, will never end. And it not just continues. innovation in, in the creation of a new drug, but innovation in how we prevent and control infections. Exactly. And innovation in how we, we're good stewards. And innovation in how we deal with the environment and with, with animal health. You know, all of these things require innovation. Do you think that one of the reasons why this is an issue, that we continuously need to convince people that the problem will never end, uh, might be because people thought, for example, penicillin was a silver bullet in the beginning. We thought the the problem is solved. We don't need doctors in the future because you can just take drugs. <clears throat> Do you think it's all lies in this history that we were raised in a time when it wasn't much of a problem? And now we're seeing that if we don't take care of it, it will be a problem. There's a famous quote from a former U.S. Surgeon General in the 60s saying, now we can close the book on infectious diseases. <laughs> <laughs> you know. No, uh, <laughs> right? And not only because of antibiotic resistance, yeah. but you know, pre-HIV and everything else. Exactly. Right. And Emerging diseases trans- will continue to be a problem. Zika and Ebola. And, right? Yeah. <laughs> but um, but there was a sense in the fifties and sixties that we had really conquered something, mm-hmm. and and that was a temporary feeling of elation. So we need a longer term view here, uh, which is another way of saying we need to, to figure out ways to educate public opinion for a generational project, you know, something that will last not beyond a decade or, or, or six, mm-hmm. right? So this is an infrastructure. So you know, we don't say, oh, we, we've, uh, we've, we've built a telecommunication system through cell phones, now we can just ignore it and stop yeah. maintaining it. No, you know, we, we understand the roads, the water system, the telecommunication system, government, justice, they all, they all need maintenance, they're part of infrastructure. Yeah. We need to think of antibiotics as part of the infrastructure that we routinely maintain, polish it up mm-hmm. you know, in order to keep it functional. Maybe in general also have a different respect for health infrastructure, that this is a complex issue. This is multifaceted. It has to do with behavior. It has to do with uh, like one the one health perspective between animal and human health and everything. It needs to be a long-term respect in seeing this in a different way. You know, I think today what we've done in the past 50 or 60 years in terms of we have done an uncontrolled experiment in bacterial evolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we have massively intervened in, to change the course of bacterial evolution by releasing millions of kilograms of these products into the environment through yeah. people, but also into the environment. In, in a way in which we could not predict the exact effects. So if, if, if a mad scientist did this on purpose, we would put them in jail yeah. for causing a global change in bacterial evolution for the worse, <laughs> right? Yeah. And so all we're doing right now is to try and to stop that thoughtless process and, and to try to, at, at every point in which we can intervene, intervene in a thoughtful way. Mm-hmm. So let's reduce unnecessary use. Let's be careful about which ones we use. Let's only use them in the most appropriate circumstances. Uh, let's uh, do prevention and infection control so we can use less. Let's uh, think of ways to vaccinate animals so we don't give them antibiotics. Let's stop mm-hmm. using antibiotics as routine growth promoters. Let's clean up the factories that are dumping antibiotics. Let's treat the sewage so that the antibiotics are all of the above, right? Yeah. Because what we've been doing for the past half a century um, you know, if, if a human had done it, we would call them a, a super criminal megalomaniac, somebody who wanted to destroy the planet, and we'd lock them up. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's very well put. <laughs> it's a super villain. It's, the, it's a James Bond villain, yeah. right? Especially but, but, if it but, had been more compact, it would be very, seem very ominous and very... <laughs> right, we call that a bioterrorist. Like a super villain. Absolutely, right? yeah. But the bioterrorist has been just 
all of us mm-hmm. not being thoughtful about how we use these very powerful drugs. It's the most powerful drug class in human history. Mm-hmm. It's been abused, and, and we're trying to react and avoid the consequences of that abuse. Yeah. How do you see with the fact that access to antibiotics is still a massive problem? And if I, underst- if I remember right, more people are currently dying from lack of access to antibiotics than from antibiotic resistance. How do you see that problem, that we need to continue to develop the access to antibiotics? According to the best estimates, that is true, that especially children under five, especially mm-hmm. in low- and middle-income countries, uh, many of them are dying of bacterial infections that are susceptible to not only current super antibiotics, but susceptible to current generic antibiotics. So IP is not the problem. High prices aren't the problem. You know, innovation is not the problem. It's just a pure access issue of getting the right antibiotic to the right parent for their children at the right time, resulting in more than 100,000 deaths. Mm -hmm. The estimates are hard because they happen in places where the data is not collected effectively. So access is a problem. So if we solved access by making antibiotics free, you know, we could solve this issue by putting (laughs) antibiotics in the water supply or or handing them out (laughs) as free candy, right? That would drive in a, that would drive resistance. Mm-hmm. You know, so we have to do both, and we have to do it in a, in a thoughtful way. So sometimes when when countries like uh, the United States or, or Sweden talk about stewardship, which is restricting antibiotics, using them only where clinically appropriate, mm-hmm. some people in developing countries ask your question back. Well, yeah. what about the people in our country for whom stewardship's not the issue? It's it's the opposite. Yeah. yeah. So we need to do both, and, and both need to happen in the context of also supporting innovation. Exactly. And doing those three things simultaneously is not only necessary and hard, uh, but it's, it's absolutely the only way to proceed. Uh, just before we wrap up, I'd like to ask, is there anything else you'd like to add that you've thought about while we've been talking? Uh, any other new projects that you're working on or anything like that? Uh, I was going to say the first time I, I came to Uppsala was uh, – for a conference that the, the, the Odo Kars was running, uh, uh, I mean, maybe, I don't know, maybe a decade ago now, <laughs> uh, you know, it's an antibiotics conference. And, uh, you know, I don't know how I got invited, uh, but uh, I, I showed up here. I'd written uh, one or two things as a, as a lawyer dabbling in antibiotics and somehow got invited to come. And a spectacular time and, and met a lot of people who I'm still working with you know, today. Um, and, uh, you know, so somebody thought in this meeting that was largely clinical and microbiologist and epidemiologist, uh, well, it's not going to kill us to invite one lawyer uh, <laughs> along. And, and I'm grateful we did. Yeah. Right. And and now there's more than one involved. <laughs> so you know, maybe that was a negative lesson. But uh, it's important to sometimes reach out to people across disciplines and invite them to your conferences. I appreciate the fact that uh, Lucas and, and the, the committee you know, or whoever was behind that, uh, he's still, uh, you know, he's allegedly retired, but, uh, but I still see him leading the global effort in the interagency coordinating group. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we still see him around sometimes here. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You know, so, so retired. Yes. But uh, he's still leading the charge. And I think it's fitting that, given how much work he did on this topic for so long that Uppsala has stood up at the Antibiotic Center because mm-hmm. um, it's able to build on a globally prominent foundation. Yeah. And Uppsala Antibiotic Center is working with React uh, Otokash group. Um, so hopefully that collaboration continues and goes well. Yeah. I, I, I love the work of React, and, and React was involved in Drive AP. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, for, for the first two years of Drive AB and and uh, you know everything that we're doing that touches stewardship and access, uh, React has an important voice in that. So yeah. we're grateful for their work. A lot of groups working, all all needed. <laughs> yeah, right. No, everyone's yeah. got a little piece of it. Yeah. If we don't work together, uh, we're we're in trouble. I almost I wonder sometimes if antibiotic resistance isn't like a test you know, of humanity's ability to work together and solve a problem. It's a global common pool solution problem, just like climate change in mm-hmm. some ways. And uh, we have to actually cooperate in order to get ourselves out of this box. So 
sounds like a really great place to end on. <laughs> uh, but I'd like to thank you for joining us today and for speaking with us. And we really appreciate you taking your time to be with us here. No, it's, I always like coming to Uppsala. <laughs> great. Thank you so much. Take care. Welcome back. I hope you enjoyed the interview. And uh, Ava, what did you think about it? This interview was really interesting. I'm very happy that we actually were able to get Kevin Otterson as mm -hmm. a, kind of our first official interview, right? Because the previous episode we had the interview with the management team at USC. Because as he mentioned, he kind of was one of the participants and one of these main characters in kickstarting um, a big, big project worldwide. Mm -hmm. So I, I found it was super interesting. It also covered a lot of ground. So yeah. I hope our listeners saw how important it is. Um, for example, I found it very interesting that he mentioned that science cannot be performed just by scientists, right? Yeah, it was really nice to have his perspective on that. I mean, as he's as he works so much with science without being a scientist. And I mean, you really get a good example of how these skills are so important. And yeah, I like, scientists I like, don't always have those skills. No, I mean, of course, like we have professionals for some things and professionals for another. So yeah. I thought it was very interesting that he mentioned uh, the idea of bringing in people that have negotiation skills to scientific projects when you want to find synergies and when you want to find common grounds and when you are working in problems as complex as antibiotic resistance. Mm -hmm. I think also it was very fun when he mentioned uh, the supervillain analogy, right? Yeah, <laughs> it's a really good analogy. Yeah, I've seen it. This supervillain analogy, I thought it was very cool to bring the problem kind of closer to the general public because this is something we all have seen through movies and mm -hmm. through stories. This kind of uh, evil mind that knows how to destroy it all yeah. um, and inadvertently without really knowing we have kind of created this this situation uh, with uh, the selection of antibiotic uh, resistant bacteria so uh, that was very interesting to and I think to. it's a good analogy for people like people like us that work a lot with antibiotic resistance kind of sometimes forget how it came and how it came not forget how it came about but it was just a really good thing to think about, like, well, if this all happened at the, like very quickly and somebody did it intentionally, how bad it would have been. But just because it happened over time and we didn't mean for it to happen, it was basically just negligence. It's a completely different thing, but we're at the same point. We have the same problems now. So. I think it kind of brings the problem back to reality, right? Yeah. Like you can see it from a different perspective. Just because it wasn't intentional doesn't mean it's not bad. No. So it might be like a wake up call to see yeah. it that way. Definitely. I also thought it was really nice to hear how Kevin Orderson became or got into this. He mentioned it was all based on a footnote. And I think that's just such a good example of how we all kind of are a lot of people kind of just stumble into what they end up doing and they end up loving it and it works out great. But it's just a nice example. Like I think for me, too, I kind of stumbled into what I ended up doing. And I, I just like hearing these stories of how people get there. Yeah. And also when we talk about scientific topics, you know, like uh, scientists are well known for being uh, curious minds, right? Mm -hmm. They they might get super into something and then develop that. And they might also see this tiny little bugging footnote somewhere <laughs> that makes them rethink the old work that they did before, right? Because uh, Professor Otterson, he he mentioned that uh, that footnote made, made them think, oh, maybe all the things I'm proposing, they might not be true for uh, antibiotics. So these kind of tiny little details might actually give you a whole new perspective mm -hmm. on uh, looking at your problem. So maybe this is um, kind of promoting that we don't let pass these small details that we actually pay attention to what yeah. we have around and what we're reading. So that was definitely something I was mm -hmm. uh, surprised of learning. I think there are a couple of terms that were used in the interview that maybe everybody didn't understand. If you're not in the field, you maybe don't understand them. So I thought we maybe could go through some of these terms and give a brief description of what they mean so that everybody's on the same page. Yeah, I think that's a very good idea. Actually, at the beginning of the interview, quite early in the interview, he mentioned clinical trials and the phases in clinical trials and how the companies in Carvex uh, graduate from Carvex at a certain point. So I think it would be very good if we can give a general overview of what clinical trials phases are and different studies within those clinical trials. Yeah. So 
I'll try to be brief here. Uh, as a drug is developed, it first goes through preclinical trials or preclinical tests, where the it's basically lab tests, not in humans, where you look at does the drug have an effect in this laboratory setting? Is it toxic? Do we think it might become an actual drug that we can use in patients? But then the drug will move on to phase one, where the drug is tested on healthy individuals to see if a healthy individual can handle the drug. So is the drug toxic to patients? And then also, it's usually at low doses first and then building up to higher doses so that we can kind of see what dose causes toxic effects. Are there any toxic effects at the doses that we think we need to use? And in this part of the clinical trials in phase one, there's these tests called SADMAD tests, which is something that Professor Alderson mentioned in the interview and what I really wanted to explain. Uh, SAD stands for single ascending dose, where these small groups of patients get a single dose and then further groups of patients will get a higher dose. So it's like maybe three patients get one dose, that goes fine. Next group of three patients gets a slightly higher dose, that goes fine. And they look at how this works. And then MAD stands for multiple ascending dose, which is, again, these small groups of patients will get several doses instead. So then we can look at how the patients, uh, how the patient's bodies handle the drug over time. So you look at fluid samples from the patient and see, for example, how is the drug broken down by the body? And again, does this work for multiple doses and toxic effects? This is where Carbex, uh, if, if we've understood right, this is where the Carbex companies graduate from Carbex and then somebody else will fund the phase two, but or these companies will then be prepared for phase two. Uh, in phase two, you look at a bigger group of patients uh, that are actually treated with this drug. They're not healthy volunteers. And you look at efficacy and side effects. In phase three, we look at efficacy, effectiveness, and safety. And I just wanted to bring this up because efficacy and effectiveness aren't the same thing when it comes to drug trials. So efficacy is basically how the drug performs under an ideal and controlled circumstance in the patient, while effectiveness is how they, it performs in real-world circumstances. So how it really works and when you're out, how it would work when it's really out in treatment. And then after phase three, the drug would be approved. If, if everything goes well, of course, every, every, all the results look good. Uh, but even after the drug is approved, you have continual surveillance of how the drug works and if there seems to be any previously unseen toxic effects. Very good, Jenny. I think uh, our <laughs> listeners would probably appreciate this uh, little further explanation of this part because it's actually a very relevant part of the yeah. Carvex program. And it's much more complicated than I made it out to be now. So if you have... If you didn't understand or there's something that's missing, please try to find more information. There's plenty out there. Coming to this, uh, I think we will actually, we will leave the links to the Carbex program, to the Drive AV program that he mentioned, to React as well, because he mentioned how the work of uh, Autocars, which was the founder of React. Uh, we will leave uh, links in the in the episode notes for you to visit if you're interested in knowing more about them. And we will also leave the link to the CIDR program that uh, Professor Alderson uh, mention this program with the postdocs uh, mm -hmm. looking into the data that they have from the Carvex. So you can find that in the episode notes. There's one more term that I think some people maybe didn't understand, which is One Health. Uh, Eva, could you explain that for us? I think One Health is a concept that we're probably going to be mentioning and repeating and coming back to. So it, I think it's uh, good that we've covered it now. So a One Health is actually an approach to designing and implementing programs, policies, legislations, and research in which multiple sectors communicate and work together to achieve better public health outcomes. Uh, this One Health approach can be actually found in uh, work related to, for example, food safety, uh, control of zoonoses, that means uh, diseases that happen in, in animals, um, but also in antibiotic resistance, right? Because we can bring together uh, the use of antibiotics and antibiotic resistance from the animal side, the human side, and the environmental side. So this is what we actually call a One Health approach, where we actually get the research and the work from animals, humans, and environment and try to compile it together to come up with outcomes. Mm -hmm. And like you said, this is something we'll be coming back to in future episodes. Yeah, because probably we'll be interviewing people that work in the animal side, in the mm -hmm. health side, in the environmental side. All these are very interconnected yeah. and they're very important for the overall topic of antibiotic resistance. Now 
we are going to move on to our new section, this inauguration of the new section uh, at the AMR studio. And actually, we want to introduce a new member of our team who is going to be with us in this new section. Paul, can you please introduce yourself? Hi, my name is Paul. I'm a PhD student in Johan Kruger and Don Anderson's group. And there's some exciting stuff happening in the world, right? Yes, yeah. they are. So could you tell us, please, about the first study that we want to talk about today? Sure. Um, I think uh, many people and many of our listeners have seen the headlines or heard about super gonorrheas or untreatable gonorrheas. Um, and there's been some uh, new uh, drugs developed for treatment of gonorrheas. There was a new publication on the 8th of November um, talking about phase two trials uh, of uh, this new drug called Zoliflodicin. I hope I got that right, and I'm sorry if I didn't. We can uh, blanket apologize for all mis- mispronunciations. Right. <laughs> um, and uh, it, it's, so far it looks really good. The sample size for phase two was quite small, and it will be very interesting to see um, uh, the effects of the drug in phase three. Yes, this article is very interesting because actually it's a new antibiotic that is targeting an essential gene in bacteria, which has been previously targeted by other antibiotics, like for example fluoroquinolones. But this is interesting because it seems to be a new mechanism of action because this uh, antibiotic actually doesn't show resistance with the strains that are actually resistant to fluoroquinolones, like for example ciprofloxacin. So we have a new first-in-class antibiotic that can actually be taken as an oral uh, antibiotic, whereas now the current drug of choice for treating gonorrhea is actually a shot. So it's much better if we can come up with with an antibiotic that is new that can actually be used for resistant gonorrhea. And on top of everything, it can actually be given as an oral one, which is much easier and better for the clinics. Uh, can you tell us, Jenny, a little bit more about in which state this, this drug is and what has just been published? So what has just been published was the results from the Phase 2. Well, the actual Phase 2 study was completed, I believe, earlier this year at the end of last year. But now this drug is in the process of recruiting um, uh, volunteers or patients. I actually can't remember what the proper word is for Phase 3 trials. Uh, the drug is being developed by the company Entesis Therapeutics that produces the drug as well as DNDI, uh, Drugs for Neglected Diseases Initiative. I believe that's right. Uh, Which a part of DNDI is GARDP, the Global Antibiotic Research and Development Partnership. So these are all working together to put the drug through phase three trials. Yeah, that's very interesting because the partnership between DNDI, GARDP, as well as Entices, uh, the framework is great because uh, DNDI, GARDP will be able to take care of low and middle income countries and Mm -hmm. Entices will be able to take care of high income countries. And that's in that way, globally, all countries will be covered by this new antibiotics, which is really needed. Yeah. And this this isn't really necessarily Carbex's pipeline or proposal or anything like that, but it kind of ties into the similar work that can be done and shows how much these initiatives really can have an effect and how this drug really can be pushed through the whole pipeline. Hopefully, we're hoping that it'll get through the phase three as well. Yeah, this publication is very on point with the interview and the discussion we had today in, in our episode. Because even though this is not a Carvex-related uh, antibiotic, but we were talking about what the clinical trials are and what the different phases are. Yeah. And this is an example of a new antibiotic that is actually moving through the, the sequence of phases. And mm-hmm. hopefully now we will get the phase three and in some years maybe it could hit the market. Yeah. And it's also worth mentioning that this drug has been given fast track status by the U.S. Food and Drug Administration because of the importance of actually finding new drugs for gonorrhea, anti-gonorrheals. Especially now that there is an increase in the gonorrhea cases and we are finding these so-called super gonorrhea strains that are resistant Mm -hmm. to most of the drugs that are of choice generally for treating it. And another news that we wanted to actually bring up today is related to uh, something that we mentioned in our introductory last month's episode. And it's that uh, when we recorded last month's episode, we mentioned that the burden or that the number of deaths uh, directly related to antibiotic-resistant bacteria in Europe were around 25,000. And when we recorded that, that was the number we had. But just a few days after that, on November the 5th, there was a new paper published in The Lancet, a new study by the ECDC, the European Center for Disease Control, 
with the latest uh, numbers on burden of antibiotic-resistant bacteria in Europe. Yeah, this new study looks at the burden of antibiotic resistance in the EU and the EEA, and they're specifically looking at the year 2015. So it's kind of a snapshot of one year where they can where they got all the numbers from. From 2007, which is when the last number that we mentioned in our last article came from, the 25,000 deaths contributed to antibiotic resistance. Uh, this number has increased and is now at 33,000 deaths. So aside from just updating this number, the study also had a lot of other value because they look at something called the DALY, the Disability Adjusted Life Years Burden. It's a good way to compare the burden of different diseases to each other and because it doesn't just look at death. What are the DALYs? The DALY combines the years lost from death due to an infection with the impact that a disease can have on an individual without killing them for disability and for time spent in hospital and other things. So so by using this DALY value, this article is not just looking at the deaths due to antibiotic resistance, but the general effect on the health of the population due to antibiotic resistance infections. And we also saw that the burden in the EUEA was highest in infants below the age of one in people above 65 years of age. Which is what we actually also talked in the previous episode, that yes. the antibiotic-resistant bacteria tend to affect most people that have not very developed immune systems or they have somewhat uh, decreased uh, immune systems, like can be the elderly patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really interesting because the DALYs uh, of AMR compares to the combined DALYs of uh, the three main infectious diseases, which is HIV, TB, and influenza. So that's very significant there. Um, what's also interesting is that uh, 75% of the total burden of AMR is associated with healthcare, which is uh, quite a big number. Yeah, Yeah, that tells us that we most probably are not doing enough to work on AMR uh, impact in the healthcare settings, mm-hmm. which means as a hospital acquired infections, and infections that the patients actually get when they are uh, part of the health system. Mm-hmm. Mm. We might, I mean, we generally see the European healthcare as being relatively high quality and everything, but maybe we're missing something here. Or definitely there's work to do yeah, if, definitely. if that is the case. So if you want to find more information about either of these articles, as well as other articles that in some cases discuss these articles, the articles are kind of science heavy, um, You can find the links to the articles in the show notes of the episode. With this, we close today's episode. We hope that you have enjoyed it, that you have learned the awesome interview we had and our discussion and the news section. And we hope to see you here next month for our third episode of the AMR Studio. See you. Thank you. For more information about the Uppsala Antibiotic Center, please visit our website. You can find a link in the episode notes. You can also follow us in Twitter. Our handle is UAC underscore UU. This episode was brought to you by the AMR Studios, composed by Eva Garmendia, Jenny Jackman, and Po Chen Tang. And a big thank you to Henrik Nis for letting us use his song, Sound the Alarm. You can find a link to his Spotify in the episode notes.